you should be exuding Christ out of the life you live. It should be evident that you're a Christian. And so baptism does that blatantly. And I think Jesus uh, and his commandments to us not only told us to teach, but also to immerse people, to bring people to that place of professing their faith. And so that's why we do it here at Christ alone. And we're excited to do it with those of you who are here that are going to get baptized next week. So it's a privilege. So um, real quick, too, you might want to silence your cell phones, especially for those of y'all who don't have nice ringtones. Uh, you know, uh, I used to do that at the barbershop, even with like a dope ringtone I had, I would put it on, you know what I'm saying, just to be quiet, because then if, if somebody could clown you at the barbershop, and we don't want to do that here at church, <laughs> all right, so make sure you put it on vibrate, that'd be great, or on silence, that would be helpful. And a shout out to Myra, we love you Myra, we hope you're watching, we miss you, pray for our sister Myra, uh, who had a knee replacement, she's doing well. Uh, we're praying for her, uh, and, and we su we're supporting her, just making sure that I check up on her. When I'm in town, I check up on two people, my sister-in-law, Evie, who I love, and Myra, who I love as well. And I check up on my sisters just to make sure if they need water or anything. And, uh, you know, I, always, I told Myra, I said, don't take advantage, though. Don't be calling me all the time because, you know, I'm busy. No, I'm joking. She can call me whenever. Uh, and I hope that you're there for her as well. Check up on our sister. If you have her number, check up on her. Pray for her. Be there for her. Uh, and so we miss you, sis. We hope to see you soon. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30 is our text today. So if you want to turn there with us, Luke 4, 16 through 30 is what we're going to get into today. Reading from the English Standard Version, that would be our text. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Starting in verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. Elijah was sent at, to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff, down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, would you help us today to be faithful to your word, not just in the preaching of it, but in the listening of it. And God, I pray that I would not be focused on the praise of man. God, help me to do this to your glory. God, if I am the only one excited about your text today, about this text, may it be. But I pray that this room will be filled with joy, God, and and desire for your word to the point of knowing that it is our bread. It is upon the bread of God that we live. So Lord, help me today to deliver your word faithfully, to encourage believers today. And I pray, God, that we will be attuned to what you have to say in your word. May it be faithfully preached, and may we faithfully listen to it. We love you, Father, and we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word, of eating of your word, and especially for those of us who come to saving faith, delighting in your word. God, we thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So, what we believe about Jesus will greatly affect the way we read our Bibles. So, if wrong on our Christology, then it follows to be wrong about everything else in the scriptures. If Jesus is not God, then what we do with John's prologue matters. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you do not believe Jesus to be God, you're going to read that whole thing wrong. What we do with the people in the Gospels, worshiping Jesus matters. There are people in the Gospels that worship Jesus. What do we do with Hebrews chapter 1 and all the other passages that are clear about the deity of Jesus? I don't know if you know. But if you're reading your Bibles, you'll see clearly that Jesus is God, period. But if you do not believe Jesus to be God and you read the scriptures, you will do what Jehovah's Witnesses have done. You'll change the scriptures. You'll reject Jesus for who he is in the scriptures. You won't admit that Jesus is God. And you'll change the word of God to fit what you believe about Jesus, rather than fitting your belief to what God says Jesus is in the scriptures. Your reception of what the scriptures teach about Jesus is compromised when you deny what the Bible clearly says about who Jesus is. In fact, that is what is at the heart of all of our problems. I had a a, a guy in the street one time, a real hood dude, tell me that all his problems started when he just believed Jesus to be only a man. A denial of who Jesus is as revealed in the scriptures. If you're denying him today, take notice that's at the seat of all your problems. A denial is evidence that you have not come to know who Jesus really is. Your starting point to what you believe determines how you live. So when you hear about Jesus, you will deny him because you do not believe in the testimony of the scriptures. 
And because you don't believe what the scriptures have to say, you have a worldview that rejects the truth about the world we live in. You instead settle for selective truth, where you'll believe some things about Jesus, but not all things about Jesus. Our default condition without God is a hatred for God. Denying God and rejecting God is our default, which is the result of a heart that has not been changed. Or a rejection can happen while having a belief that you can believe some things about the scriptures while not having belief in the certain parts where Jesus is just blatantly God in the Bible. You might believe Jesus to be a good moral teacher, but not God. Many people believe that. The problem with this is that it will inevitably lead to a blatant rejection of Jesus Christ. In fact, you may have a disguised rejection of Christ where you live religiously, like the people in our text, where Christ is revealed, but there's rejection. There's a lot of people in church that don't like Jesus. There's a lot of people in church rejecting Jesus. There's a lot of people in church rejecting the gospel. They just want to be told how good they are. They don't want to be told how sinful they are. I just want to go to church and, you know, get my coffee, sit down and feel good about myself. Well, if you have a saving faith in Christ, if you know who Jesus is, you should come with this sense of reverence and awe and being careful with the name of Jesus. You know that at the name of Jesus, demons tremble. How powerful Jesus is, how holy Jesus is, should be very intimidating. Right? We should feel the full brunt of our sin when we come to church. But that's why the gospel has to be preached. Because we validate that feeling. We say, yes. You're wretched. You're a sinner. You deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus. But Jesus. And that's where we get the joy. We get the relief that even though I feel the sense of unworthiness about my approach and relationship with God, what the Father has done to alleviate that feeling was sent his only son into the world that we who were sinners and lost and dead in our sins will be made alive. That's what he did. When you read your Bible and a demand comes from it where you are asked to believe in Jesus Christ as the God-man who came in the flesh, what will you do? Will you revolt or will you believe? Will you have a biblical theology of Christ or will you be deceived by having what I call, and I'll explain later, a hometown theology? A hometown theology. Our outline for today, uh, first point, very simple, is the reading. We see the reading in verses 16 through 21. The reading, verses 16 through 21. Second point, the reception in verses 22 through 27. The reception, verses 22 through 27, and finally, the revolt, in verses 28 through 30. The revolt, 28 through 30. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was custom, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
So the reading of scripture was a weekly practice for the covenant people of God. Here, the reading took place in Nazareth, a city of lower Galilee. Nazareth is regarded by many scholars actually as an unimportant village during the life of Jesus. Based on its location, it's where the main routes for trade did not go. It was not considered somewhere important. In fact, Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament and the Apocryphas, and also it's not mentioned in the writings of Josephus. So as we have already noted, remember Nathaniel's comment about Nazareth where he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Nazareth it wasn't that important to many people in our immediate text. The synagogue in our text was a place of assembly and worship. It was developed during the Jewish settlements of the Mediterranean late in the centuries BC. It came later. The synagogues came during the exile where the people of God could not worship because of the destruction of the temple. Synagogues appeared during the return of the Jews from their captivity. Now let's remember, we covered this last week, some early accounts tell us that the synagogues were full with people, with God's people who read the Torah. They read the writings of the prophets. They provided biblical instruction. They preached sermons, weekly sermons. And it was there where communal prayer was done weekly. This was the local meeting place and assembly to the Jewish people of God during the New Testament, as was custom for them to meet weekly as God's people on the Sabbath day. Here, Jesus stood up to read. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So they had scrolls. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So for you note takers, this is coming from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. And there are four things from what he read in Isaiah that speak of the messianic prophetic description of the Messiah. He talked about the spirit of the Lord would be upon him. First point, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So what good news did Jesus share with the poor in his ministry? Matthew 5, 3, we covered this in Kafia. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So right there, Jesus preached to the poor who were often ignored in his time and left out of the synagogues. You remember James, we talked about not sitting the rich up front and sitting the poor in the back? That happened in the synagogues. When John asked his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one to come, Luke chapter 7, we'll cover this later, verse 22, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And then he says, the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus, if you study well, was often ministering to those who were poor. In fact, he did say in Matthew 26, 11, you will always have the poor with you. Always. The example of the poor widow in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, which is not a parable, by the way. Jesus used this lady, this widow, as an example that she gave more than the rich. 
This would have been good news to the poor, which Jesus preached in his ministry. He preached the good news to the poor that it does not matter how much money you have. Hello. For those of y'all tight with bills, your money is not everything. It feels like everything because you got bills to pay. <laughs> got that cell phone bill. Got this. It, it adds up, doesn't it? Right? Sometimes it's tight. And, it, and, and when it's tight, money feels like it really matters. People don't understand. You know, I, I was I'm trying to remember the situation I was in where uh, they were talking about um, people who were, uh, and I can't remember, but it was uh, this, this uh, conversation we were having. People were talking about finances. And, you know, they were saying the same thing. Money really doesn't matter at the end of the day. And I said, yo, hold up, though. <laughs> when money's tight, it feels like it matters. It really, especially when you have a family. When you got little ones you got to take care of. Money matters. But it's not everything. It's not everything. And so for those of us who know what it is to survive, Right? To not have much. I get it. It does matter to some extent. But it's not all that matters. Jesus made that very clear in his ministry. You might be poor, but you are blessed. Bills might be tight, but you're blessed. Because if you have me, you have everything you need. He did preach good news to the poor. The second thing he did was... He, uh, he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives from Isaiah. What did Jesus mean by those who are captive? I believe he's speaking of those who have been conquered and imprisoned. Conquered and imprisoned is what captive means. Paul helps us to understand what Jesus meant here. Paul speaks about being held captive by the law in Romans 7, 6. What Paul meant was that the law that was given by God pointed to our sin and our need for it to be fulfilled. But it left, left us with the dilemma of not being able to fulfill what the law required. Because we're all lawbreakers. Anybody here steal? Anybody ever commit covetousness? Want what somebody else has? Did anybody here ever dishonor their mother and father? I mean, you can go through the whole list. Somehow, way, we fell short. This is our dilemma. We're condemned because of that. We deserve the wrath of God because of that. Galatians 3.23, Paul said, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was not the issue. It was our sin and deserving punishment from what we have done with God's law. So God had to send Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, sinless life that would fulfill all the law's requirements so that when Jesus died on the cross, becoming sin on our behalf, his fulfillment of the law's requirements will be then accredited to us who place faith in him. Jesus set free those who were held captive to their sin from the law that rightly condemned them, us. And here, Jesus came to proclaim liberty to those who were captive to sin, which doesn't fit the immediate expectation of being set free from Roman oppression. 
They didn't like that message. What are you going to do about Rome? I hear what you're saying about the law and my personal problems, but we got bigger problems. No, your biggest problem is your sin. You're your biggest problem. G.K. Chesterton, I love uh, one thing that they asked them. They were asking a bunch of authors, you know, uh, to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And everybody gave poverty and, you know, the, the, the governmental systems of the problems of the world. And G.K. Chesterton was very short when he said, I am what's the problem with the world. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. I am my greatest enemy. Number three, he has sent me to recover sight to the blind. We can say, of course, that Jesus does give spiritual insight, but the immediate context here fits the literal. Jesus came to give sight to those who were actually blind. He's not talking about spiritual sight. He's talking about physical, because this is a messianic text. Jesus healed many who were blind in the Gospels. You remember blind Bartimaeus in Luke 18? There's several examples of Jesus healing people. Matthew 15, 29 through 31. Turn there with me. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have your Bible, shame on you. <laughs> Matthew 15, verses 29 through 31. Let's go there. Oh, I'm sorry. Matthew, yeah, Matthew 15. I thought I said Matthew 29. There's not 29 chapters in there another Bible. Matthew 15, 29 through 31. Jesus went on from there, I'm in verse 29 of Matthew 15, and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Very clear. Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecy. He was the Messiah. Number four, he has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's interesting that in every example we have of the word oppressed in the Gospels, it is directly linked to demon oppression. Note this. If you don't know what oppressed means here, the Gospels make it very clear that every time it uses the word oppressed, it means demon oppression. This would make sense of what Jesus came to do, which was to flex his messianic power over the demonic realm. That's what he did. He put the devil on a chokehold. So you're not going to mess with my people right now. If you're, if, if you're oppressing someone, you got to go. And he did that to prove that he was the Messiah. In fact, Acts chapter 10, verses 37 to 38, Peter said, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed. He didn't stop there. He said, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. 
for God was with him. So oppression here had to do with demonic oppression. The ministry of Jesus was focused on giving freedom to people. It was not a ministry of vengeance, which is why he stopped where he stopped in Isaiah. He could have continued. Let's go back to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Go there with me. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, because Jesus stopped somewhere here. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. If you don't know where your books are in your Bibles, go to, uh, go to Ollie's. They actually have the old school tabs where it tells you where the books are. Just a heads up. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what he read in our text. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the, of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stopped. Right after, what does it say? And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. It wasn't a ministry of vengeance. It's a ministry of sacrifice. Vengeance will come later. But not then. And vengeance wouldn't come on his people. It will come upon him. Verse 20 of our text, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. What would the reception be to what Jesus is saying here? This is a second point in verses 22 through 27 in the reception. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, by marveled in our text, Luke's, Luke is meaning to say that they were in wonder. They were amazed by what Jesus had said here. The Greek word for marvel can be a favorable word or an unfavorable one, depending on the context. Here, it seems at first to be favorable. All did speak well of him. And notice that Luke calls what Jesus said as gracious. Gracious meaning that what Jesus said was full of favor. It was full with kindness as he was talking. He was full with compassion while he was communicating this. And it had the favor of God with it. The words of Jesus were full of grace. It looked like God was with what Jesus was saying here. This was so evident that in Jesus saying this here in verse 21, he says, then today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then they asked the question, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus said today the scripture has been fulfilled where he said he has anointed me to proclaim goodness to the poor. He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to recover sight to the blind. He has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Today, this has been fulfilled. And it caused them to marvel, to wonder. Hold up, though. This is Joseph's son. This really brings about the question for us today about who we think Jesus is. Is he the Messiah or is he Joseph's adopted son? 
Who is he? And how have we shown our belief about who he is to the world around us? Who do you think Jesus is? Well, you know, he's God, okay? Have you been living like he's God? When you come to church, you know what I'm saying? Do you look up to the heavens knowing that he's your help, that he has rescued you from your sin? Have you, have you been thankful? Have you been worshipful? Have you fled from your sin because he's God? Man, are you full of pride? God don't like ugly. Pride is very ugly to the Lord. He despises the proud, he says. What has God looked like in your life? Because people passively talk about that they're Christians, but they don't actively talk like they're Christians. There's no activity. Your profession is dead. Help us, Lord. Yes, I need help. Sometimes I want to be me. I want to be me when somebody gets on my nerves. When somebody gets on me and somebody tries to tell me what to do. It's real easy. It can come out like, don't tell me what to do. Like, get out of my face. You know what I'm saying? Those of you know what I'm talking about. That you comes out. That you that shouldn't come out. But when you stand before God and understand his holiness and who he is, you're humbled. Well, you can pray for your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Who is God to you? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this. Listen closely. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said sort of the things that Jesus said would not be just a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Who do you think Jesus is? The answer to that question does not come from the words that come from your mouth. Not from that only. But it must follow that your life has to give an account for that answer. What you truly believe about God has been coming out already. I don't know if you knew that. You're already telling people who Jesus is. You're already saying that at your jobs, with your life. You're communicating who Je- how valuable Jesus is to you. The question is, has it, has, it, has it been clear? 
Who is Jesus and how has our life answered this question? Do we believe that Jesus actually proclaimed good news to the poor? That he actually set at liberty those who were captive? That he recovered sight to the blind? That he freed those who were demon oppressed? If your answer is yes, then how has your life shown a devotion and reverence for that faith? If you don't believe this today, your life is already showing that you don't believe. The Bible says a healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. Remember where this is happening in our text. This happened in Nazareth where he had been brought up, where people saw Jesus grow up. The Jesus they knew was the son of Joseph, not the Messiah promised. Their familiarity blinded them from seeing who Jesus was. It hindered them from the reception Jesus deserved. And it caused them to reject Jesus because of what he didn't do for them. Verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So the second half of verse 23 explains what Jesus meant when he said, physician, heal yourself. In other words, heal where you came from first. Begin where you actually started, your hometown. They're saying, why Capernaum and not Nazareth, where you're from? In their minds and in their culture, healings that took place at that time would have meant that God was favorable. Why is God favorable at Capernaum and not here? Jesus at this time had already done miracles at Capernaum, which was north of the Sea of Galilee and east from Nazareth, but he had not done a public miracle in Nazareth. Why didn't he do this here where he was brought up? Verse 24, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. All four gospels actually record that saying, starting in the gospel of John, the, the, John the apostle records in John 4 that after Jesus when he stayed with Samaritans for two days, where they confessed that Jesus was the savior of the world, Jesus, it says, avoided going back to Nazareth, but instead he departed to Galilee. He stayed away from his hometown. Chapter 4, verses 43 through 44 of John. Then a parallel account in Matthew 13, 53 through 58 says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I remember uh, growing up in the, I didn't grow up in church, I came to faith at 15, but this was a common misconception that people made from this text that Jesus was unable to do miracles there, that it was a matter of inability. No, it was a matter of choice. Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, it tells us he went away from there, a parallel account from his hometown. His disciples followed him on Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. I'm going too fast, my bad. I know, you know takers are looking at me a certain way. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there 
and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hosus, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And among his relatives and in his own household, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So he did do miracles there. He decided not to do it over here, because the people were tripping, they were doubting. So he said, okay, I'm going to heal over here. They knew Jesus to do miracles, but the question is, why not there? Why not where Jesus had grown up, in the synagogue? They made the mistake of wanting to see miracles while rejecting the greatest of miracles, which was that God was among them. They were blind due to their familiarity. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Moses, or uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not all his sisters with us? Is not this Joseph's son? They had unbelief, and it came from familiarity. Familiarity means the recognizability based on long or close association. The saying, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that saying? That means to have an extensive knowledge of or close association with someone that leads to a loss of respect for them. Has Christ and the things of God become too familiar to you? That might be where lies your issue. Maybe we have lost the sacredness in the things of God. Maybe that's at the core of your complaint. I've heard people complain about worship. Why don't we worship this way? Why is the music, why do we have to have fast songs? Why is it that we don't do this and do that? Maybe you become too familiar with the things of God, too comfortable. It, it astounds me that people will complain about people worshiping God. Complaints about preaching and teaching. I don't like the Wayne be preaching. Wayne takes too long. <laughs> or Lowe's, Lowe's takes too long. Lowe, you know, every time Wayne and Lowe's come up and preach, you know, they're, they're always, you know, and they nitpick and pick, 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 pick. We're preaching God's word, and you're complaining. We're not perfect. Me and Wayne are far from perfect. But, man, we're striving to be faithful. There's a lot of pastors that open up their Bibles, read a verse, and then they talk about their vision for the next 50 minutes. And people are complaining. Maybe you've become too familiar or you lost respect for the preaching of God's word. I've even heard people complain about fellowship. Oh, you know, people don't call me, people don't, 
When's the last time you were at coffee? Go ahead. When's the last time you were at church? I've even heard people complain about prayer. Seriously. Well, I don't like the way they pray. When I come, it's boring. I fall asleep, I knock out when they pray, during prayer nights or whatever. Like prayer's about you. Maybe praying to you will get you up. Maybe talking about you the whole time during prayer will excite you. Is that what you want us to do? Maybe you've lost that sense of reverence and awe for the things of God. The things of God are not about you. It's about Christ. Exalting Christ. I know many churches that don't have roofs over their heads. Dirt paths. No walls. And they love Jesus. And they celebrate him. They don't need walls. They don't need air conditioning. I need air conditioning. But they don't need air conditioning. They don't need all that stuff. I've seen believers have nothing and worship like they have everything. This is an American problem. This is actually a human problem. We can look at this text and be like, look at what the Jews did. No, look at what you do. This is a me problem today. I've complained about the things of God. I've found complaints over the things of God. And it might have been that I've been too familiar with the things of God. There was a song from the 70s. I don't know what it's called, but it still speaks true today where it said, you don't know what you have till it's gone. You don't know what you have till it's gone. Trust me. The grass ain't greener on the other side. If for some reason, by God's sovereign will, whatever he wants, if he shut our church down, those of y'all who've been complaining this whole time will be the ones who miss what God was doing here. God, like I say, no le gusta complain. Don't mess with me, y'all. I'll speak Spanish in a heartbeat. Yes, I am Rican. I'm not Muslim, I'm not Arab. I'm Latino, I'm Puerto Rican. God don't like complaint. He don't like it, so cut it out. Those people in the wilderness stayed 40 years in there because they complained. Don't play with God. Instead of complaining about everything, look for the things that are good. God is doing good things. There was complaining about what color we're going to paint the church. Yo, we got a church. <laughs> Has Christ and the things of God become too familiar to you? Good question for us today, saints. Familiarity caused blindness and a loss of appreciation for the things that God has given. In this case, in our text, they were blind to who Christ was. How does Jesus deal with this? Verse 25 to 27. But in truth, I tell you, he says, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Listen, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus spoke of the time where there was a great famine and how Elijah was sent only to Zarephath, the Phoenician town, where there was a widow in 1 Kings 17. Elijah, Elijah did a miracle there for the widow where a jar of flour and a jug of oil that the widow had would not become empty until the Lord would bring rain upon the land. Then Jesus also spoke of the miracle of Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings chapter 5. Elisha, the servant, Elijah's servant, told Naaman to wash himself in the Jordan seven times and that in doing so he would be healed from his leprosy. Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times while complaining and doing so. According to the word of the man of God here in his flesh, it says, the Bible says, was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was cleansed. Why did Jesus bring these two stories out to the people in the synagogue? The widow of Zarephath and Naaman, the Syrian, were Gentiles. What does that mean? They weren't in the covenant-keeping people of God. God went outside of the covenant people of God and healed people that weren't a part of the covenant. These two accounts from Scripture exposes their problem in our text. Their unbelief of Jesus as the Messiah promised will cause Jesus to do what he did before. Remember, Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament who passed over Israel's needs because of their unbelief. He met the needs of people outside of the corporate people of God. Unbelief breeds familiarity, and it causes one to miss out on what God can do. The widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian were Gentiles, and they received miracles from God instead of Israel, because at the time, during that time, there was much unbelief in Israel. God passed over his own people and healed people outside of them because of their unbelief. God don't like unbelief and complaint. Do you see why they were upset in our text? It caused them to revolt, which is our last point in closing, the revolt, verses 28 through 30. Let's read verses 28 and 29. And when they heard this, they heard, uh, when, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to be the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They were upset. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath because they were blind to who Jesus is. Now listen to this. They wanted to throw him who is the truth down the cliff because he wouldn't perform for them. They could not see how blind they were in their unbelief. They revolted against the one who was promised to them. They missed the time of their visitation because they saw Jesus as the son of Joseph. 
not the Son of God. Their revolting came from their unbelief and their familiarity. A good lesson for us, saints. Have we been complaining? Have we been not enjoying the things of God? Are we not seeing Christ for who he is? Their unbelief and familiarity caused them to want to throw out the living embodiment of healing and truth, Jesus. So my exhortation to you today, don't throw out truth by your unbelief. In other words, believe. Don't have a hometown theology of Jesus Christ where he becomes so familiar that you miss out on the good things that he's doing. He is here to heal. He is here to deliver. He is here to cause sight to the blind, to give compassion to those who are lost and poor and broken. And he's doing that in our midst. I have stories of people in our church that God has healed, that God is providing for. He's using us as his church in the city to bring provision to those who are in need. Single moms and single fathers that are needing help. Broken families that need the gospel. God is using us. But be careful that these things become so familiar that all you do is nitpick at everything we're doing wrong. A hometown theology of Christ is this, a familiarity that leads to a loss of respect and reverence for Christ. It was unbelief that brought sin into the world when Adam and Eve failed to believe in the word of God. It was unbelief that made those in the synagogue here in our passage become full of wrath, causing them to want to throw Jesus over a cliff. And it may be that unbelief in Jesus is our problem today. How can we avoid unbelief? Well, if you're an unbeliever here today, know that apart from faith in Christ, you are dead in your sins. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says, you shall be saved. Believe the Lord Jesus, and you can be saved. You can be different. Born again. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Many of us have testimonies where we were one way before faith, and now that we've come to saving faith, I'm not the same person anymore. I'm a whole new creature. I desire things now that I never desired before. And I'm no longer desiring things that I desired before. The blunts, the drinks, gone in a day. God can do that today. He can save you. I don't care if it's crack cocaine. I don't care if it's heroin. Whatever it is, God can deliver you. Now, to those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, have the things of God become familiar to the point of not seeing Jesus and the things of God as sacred and a privilege? Have you become a complainer of the things of God? Have you found yourself grumbling? When was the last time the church brought joy into your heart? I would exhort you to avoid a hometown theology of Christ by reverencing the things of God and being thankful for what he has given. Jesus is worth your joy. The church is worth your celebration, but familiarity and a hometown theology of Jesus can rob you of seeing the beauty of the things of God. So avoid unbelief by repenting and trusting in Christ and look to be thankful for the things he is doing here today. Jesus proclaimed good news. He proclaimed liberty 
and gave sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who were demon oppressed. We should celebrate that in our fellowship with one another. He's still doing a good work today. Don't throw out truth, saints. Repent and believe the good news of the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the text today. Would you help us? We can grow very unthankful, lose reverence and respect. Help us not to be like the people in our text where they saw you, they heard you, but when you didn't perform for what they wanted, they wanted to throw you off a cliff. God, give us heaven's mentality where we think of the things of God, not the things of men. Help us to be those that desire and think heavenly, that we would be of earthly good. Help us to push out the lie that says we could be too heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. No, Lord, your word teaches us to be heavenly minded so that we can be of earthly good. Teach us today, I pray. God, if we've become so familiar with the things that you've given us that we have become complainers, irreverent, forgive us. Open our eyes to your beauty and worth in the life of the church, your bride, your people. I know if someone in front of me, Lord, will talk about my wife, I would get defensive. But God, when's the last time we were defensive of your bride? And how defensive you are of your bride. How dare we talk about your bride in an irreverent way. God help us. To love the church that you love. That you died for. Help us. To see you and your beauty and your worth. And not become full of wrath because you have not performed for us. Rather God help us to believe what you said from Isaiah. That you have come to do the ministry. Help us to celebrate, to receive you, not to revolt. I ask this in Jesus' name.